Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without the resident, you might not get to experience London and... Without the resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Wednesday, the 11th of October. I'm Callum McDonald. Thank you very much for being there. Thank you for finding the podcast. This podcast takes you behind the scenes of politics with those who have lived it, who have helped inform policymaking and decision-making to find out exactly how it works. And we analyse things going on today. If that sounds up your street, then press the follow button. It is completely free and you can stick around and never miss an episode. And if you need more reasons to stick around and never listen to an episode, well, here's one for you. It's Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. What a wonderful introduction. Good morning to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> thanks for being here. And also on the podcast this week, we're pleased to welcome back a friend of the podcast. Uh, Alice Perry joins us, uh, who was a Labour councillor for 11 years, was on Labour's National Executive Committee for eight years, including as chair, worked on three general election manifestos, and is fresh from Labour Party conference. Alice, hello. Hello, good morning. How do you feel about being described as fresh from Labour not- Party conference? <laughs> I'm not sure I feel fresh. I was there since <laughs> Saturday, so I was going to stay till today, but I think like last night I was like, no, I need to get home and eat vegetables and yeah. uh, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you did quite a shift. Gosh, yeah. Saturday to Tuesday. How yeah. did it feel? If, if there was a kind of word to describe the tone, um, you know, and the atmosphere, the journalists have done their best at it. What was your take? Um, I'd say, especially once you're in the conference zone, like it was relaxed, but like focused, maybe discipline is the word mm. that people would use as well. But like it felt like when you were inside like the hall it felt like Labour Party conference like it always feels like but then you go outside the hall and it's a lot more frantic and there's a lot more uh lobbyists and like businesses and like lots of confused CEOs 
uh, you know, <laughs> which in itself conference. is telling isn't it yeah. the fact that they're all there and like really great feedback from a lot of the people from businesses and stuff attending who not just from a labor point of view but were enjoying networking with each other as well and like mm. people were joking there was like um it was like davos but uh in liverpool <laughs> with all the <laughs> different ceos and businesses but like <clears throat> that kind of co- that kind of experience going on outside the hall was kind of different to um the mood and atmosphere within the hall and like at one point <clears throat> i was like saying to my friend this is just really nice this is like labor used to be it's like all the sort of kind of difficult times never happens but then i went to um uh, the Labour First Fringe meeting and, like, you know, heard from uh, some of our female Jewish MPs who the last time they attended, they were had to be accompanied by special branch for their security. And you're like, actually, no, <laughs> the past did happen and it's really important to, like, remember that and be aware mm. of the whole journey that the party's been through. And so when the protester hit here with glitter and he kind of said, this is why we've changed the party, um, that message is really important as well. And like in the hall, from the delegates, even people on the left of the party, the right of the party, wanting to win elections isn't a left-right issue. There are plenty of people who, uh, you know, would be members of Momentum that were still on board for like what kids trying to achieve. It's not always as kind of nuanced as like a left-right thing. Like people just after 13 years of opposition, now it's time to just get serious and... Um, be focused on trying to win the election and so some people were like oh does it feel a bit flat does conference feel a bit flat and it's like, I don't know what you're expecting but I guess because people were so focused no one was saying anything particularly controversial or in some people's views like interesting but um politics isn't entertainment and like sometimes especially over the last few years you know Boris Johnson was incredibly entertaining and people kind of would view politics in the US or the UK as a form of entertainment and it isn't. So, you know, serious, boring uh, public service is actually maybe what it's time for the to have in the country and maybe what the country needs. Um, but yeah, I found it like a very lovely experience um, <laughs> being, back, being back at conference. It was just also always nice seeing like friends from around the country Mm. seeing like a lot of friends as well who are like prospective parliamentary candidates now we have some mm. really fantastic ppcs from a massive range of different backgrounds um and yeah like it was great being in the hall for like angela rain's speech rachel Rue's speech like Keir's speech um and like just kind of i liked the staging of conference with a little sign by people's head that was just like the future and like mm. kind of focused on being forward looking, outward looking, speaking to the public and like looking back at all the mad conferences that we've had. Like <laughs> there have I was, been many. Yeah, I was um assistant chair in uh well, I chaired conference in 2022, 2021, and I think it was 2017 as well. And the contrast from 2017 to like 2022 or 2023 is just so profound um and like we were talking as well like just because some of the things looking back are like quite funny now we were like talking about the time that um they tried at the last minute to abolish the post of deputy leader in 2019 brilliant and we weren't gonna like so your first NEC meeting at conference to kind of agree the agenda is like a 10 minute meeting on the Friday. That was when conference was on, started on the Saturday. So you'd go on the Friday, 10 minutes, kind of a formality, people would dial in. And like, because nothing was on the agenda, we were all uh, the, let say Corbyn skeptic members were told, uh, you don't need to be there. It's fine. So we weren't there. And um, <laughs> I think there was like something like, 18 members to 10 where they tried to have a vote to abolish the post of deputy leader but like one of the like one person was late so couldn't vote and so the vote fell by one vote um so then like i had no idea any of this was happening i like we were moving house the next day it was like really busy i had like a one-year-old i like went to bed woke up looked at my phone like about 
I don't know, 5am to see what time it was and realised I had like 60 missed calls. <laughs> I was like, what? What's going on? And we had to like get up at like 6am and like get down to Brighton to make it in time for, I think like the 9am meeting to make sure that uh, everything was fine by the time we got there at 9am, but like Tom Nick Watson Forbes. was saved. He was saved. Nick Forbes and James Asser were like were on the four fifteen a.m. train. Who were they? <laughs> so, Who were they? Oh, there were other NEC members. In fact, James was um, elected chair of the NEC yesterday. Oh, so it's whoa. just like um, a, just everyone had to quickly get down to Brighton. But I mean, by that point, the reaction of the parliamentary Labour Party had probably put a stop to it. But <laughs> yeah. it, when you look look back at that, we're like, isn't it funny that the Labour Party could have ended up splitting? And mm. if if that one person had arrived in, on time for the vote and it was someone who was always late for things. Um, so we were like laughing. Oh, isn't it funny? It's typical. She was always <laughs> late. But and like, while some of those things are funny, as I say, some things looking back will never be funny. Like it's never going to be funny that like yeah. Luciana Berger needed security to go to her in conference, Gosh. you know? Absolutely. So, um, yeah. But like, it's a different fa- I mean, time fast- now. Well, that's it. And it is fascinating to contrast those different times. It's interesting to hear you as well use words like lovely and, you know, actually quite enjoyable. I think from my from my sort of zoomed out, you know, over here watching as a journalist perspective, Kirsty, it felt quite sharp to me, as in quite kind of focused. And even from Keir Starmer's interview last Sunday with Victoria Derbyshire on the telly, I felt like he actually, you know, he, he had answers to things. And he was very sort of, I'm, I'm going to give you information here. And I don't know, it feel like, felt like that carried on through the conference. What, what was your sort of perception of it? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, just to pick up on Alice's point, the last bit of the story of Alice's, Alice's point about but for uh, history could have changed. For, for anyone that believes that politics is mostly conspiracy theory, I can assure you it's almost always good old-fashioned cock-up. <laughs> um, uh, so that made me laugh. Um, look, I mean, I didn't go this year, obviously, because uh, of the whole chemo mm. malarkey. Um, but I went last year. You could already feel the tectonic plate shifting. But last year, it was very much a kind of hedging of bets. There were as many corporate types, lobbyists, conservatives as there were at Labour, because it was still a kind of all-to-play-for feeling about it. I was speaking to a former cabinet minister a couple of days ago, and actually, they made a very good point about the business uh, meeting. So they had this one of the big money spinners of conference uh, is allowing kind of you know the business leaders to to rub shoulders with you know the, the front bench, as it were, and chat to them about their concerns. Um, and uh, they were saying, yes, this, the the conservative one this year was was fully booked, but it was fully booked with heads of public affairs. Uh, and heads of corporate comms, whereas the one at Labour was was a heavily oversubscribed and alone fully booked, but it was full of chief executives, and that alone will tell you where the business community has already decided the most likely outcome of this will be. So some of it's about that. Obviously, discipline matters when you're trying to, uh, you know, present yourself as the uh, party fit to govern, um, and. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of discipline on display. We'll we'll come back later to the contrast between labours of labour conferences of recent past uh, and this one in relation to uh, anti-Semitism and the Jewish community. But uh, the other thing I note, Riley, is that sometimes it's just about a bit of luck as well. So you know, Keir Starmer gets up to deliver his conference speech. Very important moment. Some tool gets on to make a protest about some weird, obscure thing in politics that even I've never heard of before, yeah. um, and sprinkles glitter over uh, Keir Starmer. So he manages to do his entire speech quite literally covered in stardust. Uh, so as <laughs> and protest with sleeves, and with the sleeves rolled up and rolling up his sleeves. So as protests go, it's one that did the. Uh, <laughs> Did the uh, uh, the, the leader more favours than it did him harm? I can assure you. So yes, if it, 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 it ticked all the boxes for me of a uh, of what it needed to do for a conference, we'll come on to Starmer's speech in a minute. But you know, there was some great. Uh, you know, David Lammy is a great barnstorming orator. That was a great speech. Uh, getting Carney's endorsement. Uh, Rachel Reeves did a very um, very good, very. Uh, uh, very competent, very well argued speech, 
Angela Rayner is always uh, you know a favourite with the with the delegates, um, and there was you know very little actually in the conference floor to trouble. And of course, you've always got the world transformed outside, but that is very. I mean, that's not fringe; that's literally outside the conference now. Um, and anybody that cared to remind themselves about what recent past Labour conferences looked like needed to only go over uh, over the road and bibble around in the World Transformed tent for a bit uh, to see a revivalist 1980s-style student politics at its finest. Um, so, yes, it was... Uh, they, should, they should be very pleased with themselves. It was a very well-run conference that I think... Uh, delivered the step change that Starmer would want to see. Now, a lot of that won't get cut through on the on the front pages at the moment because obviously, what's happening in the Middle East. But looking at some of the northern papers, I mean, looked at the Yorkshire Post this morning, um, and you know the the votes in the north are going to be critically important. And obviously, in the big regional papers, I was keen for myself to contrast what happened with the northern papers last week at the end of conference with Labour. And these were, you know, these were glowing um, as opposed to last week's, which were absolutely, you know, eviscerating. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think everybody uh, in Lotto should be, uh, sorry, leader of the opposition, uh, should be very pleased with themselves. It was a very well-run, uh, ticked all the right boxes kind of conference on the eve of, of what possibly might be a general election before the next one. Yeah, indeed. And I suppose from here then, it's about kind of building in many ways, both literally and metaphorically, but building for uh, the Labour Party. So I'm just going to go over a couple of lines that have emerged in Keir Starmer's interviews this morning, particularly with Times Radio. So he says he will get tough with NIMBY Labour MPs who oppose developments in their constituencies. He says he's prepared to ignore local opposition. He says we're going to get tough with anyone who stands in the way. That will include local Labour MPs, which I think is quite interesting. Uh, Also, Stephen Swinford, political editor of The Times, reports Keir Starmer's pledge to bulldoze through planning laws has won support of some Tory MPs. Um, He cites a red wall Tory. This is Labour's strongest policy. Whilst I don't agree with everything, there's a lot to like. Creates jobs, boosts growth and is honest about how we will build homes. Now, that's quite interesting too, because I suppose um, there's an element to a conference that is sort of surreal in some ways, isn't there? It's very bubbly, it's very in, all of that. Political nerds love it, party members love it, etc. Now you've got to take these things into the real world mm-hmm. where it will face, well, in the, you know, in this case, the party of government, but the opposition in its literal term, uh, its literal meaning. And so, Alice, there's something about that, isn't there? Translating, you know, what... F- felt like from you know there's consensus here what felt like quite a sharp focused conference into the reality of an election battleground and it's it's a really interesting um to think about the importance of collective responsibility which in local government um you know when i was a councillor you didn't break the whip i was chief whip of our group for five years in the last five years no one ever voted against the whip like we'd take a collective position as a group and then we all would stand by it and then, you know, when you'd interview people for the council panel, they'd say, oh, but in Parliament, MPs just vote however they feel they should vote for their constituents. And, like, there's been a lack of collective responsibility in Parliament, but, like, something that a Keir Starmer government would want is much more collective responsibility um, to the centre and what um, people are trying to achieve than just everyone go off go, going off doing their own things. And so the same thing when it comes to like actually pushing through planning reform, if there's a controversial development, obviously you need high quality developments um, and, you know, local views do matter. But at the same time, um, to actually deliver the homes or, you know, the wind farms or the infrastructure that the country needs, you do need to kind of work collectively. And sometimes that will come into conflict with like local interests. So it's, like quite an important line Labour's taking on this and Keir's taking and like uh, probably it's the only way to deliver it as well. But it was quite funny. There was um, an Adam Smith Institute fringe at Labour Party conference where you see like this was like um, a big topic of discussion and like whether any government actually would be able to um, push through the kind of planning reform changes. Uh, and it's going to, you know, it's something that, on paper or when you're saying this is what you should do but once it once it does come into conflict with 
uh, local oppositions, local views and constituency MPs who might um, be under a lot of pressure from their voters to oppose things. It has been a challenge for like successive governments who've announced changes they want to make. So it's very interesting that he's sending that signal now. Yeah, um, it was just a step back a minute. There's, there's much as there are stages to Sunak's leadership that need to be hit, markers that need to be hit, there are those for Keir Starmer too. Now, the first one was obviously to drain the swamp. Uh, you know, hats off to him. He expended a lot of political capital on doing that because he, it is the right thing to do and he believes it's the right thing to do. The second one was required considerably less heavy lifting, which was to make the argument that the Tories were not fit to govern. And uh, thanks, to Bor- that one. thanks to Boris Johnson and his trust, uh, he needed to just sit back and go see, and, and that would do, really. Uh, then he needs to set out the vision and values as a leader, and, I, and we'll come back to that in terms of his speech. And then finally, he needs to sort of set out policy. And again, there was some kind of mild criticism about it was a very policy-like speech. At this stage, he doesn't need to be heavy on policy. But I think one of the things that was most important about his speech uh, was one of the directions of travel that he chose to go on was house building. And I have long mm. believed that house building is the is the answer to many things that ail our country at the moment. Um uh, not least, it is a great way of speeding growth in this country is through construction. Uh, it is a great way of creating social cohesion. Uh, and it is a great way of getting the younger generation to have some purpose in investing in the concept of liberal democracy and capitalism, i.e., you know, the, the, the points around aspiration. If you work hard, uh, you have, you know, pay your taxes, get a job, et cetera, et cetera. You will have the ability to acquire capital mm. and therefore wealth in your life that, you know, uh, that you, uh, if you are fortunate enough not to end up in a care home, will be able to hand down to your children and, you know, and make sure that your children get a stronger start in life than you do. So I think it's a very important, useful and insightful thing for them to to, to carve out as a direction of travel. However... Having said that, um, and uh, th- there are good things and bad things about this for me. One, obviously, uh, significant. There is no house building without significant planning reform, right? And I think Labour obviously have a much better chance of doing that because their concentration, by and large, is urban MPs as opposed to quite a large subsection of rural MPs that Conservatives have, which led Rishi in an understandable need to appease his own backbenchers uh, to tear up uh, the imposition of local plans on councils, which I assume will be reimposed under a Labour government. Um, And there is a cross-party consensus at the moment that, uh, you know, Britain's ability to build anything, homes, infrastructure, big planning projects, has become completely unwieldy and sclerotic and needs a massive, massive reform. So I wholeheartedly applaud that. I am, however, a little sceptical about both the Conservatives and Labour's 300,000 Homes Pledge. Um, We have only once succeeded in this country at building a net 300,000 homes a year, and that was in the 60s, but that was because it came alongside a lot of slum clearance which made it easier to hit your net build target than at any other point. We have never, ever hit it before. When I was at DCLG uh, under Eric Pickles, it was one of our main focuses and drives was to strain every sinew and lean on every council to to get that house building figure up. And I think we got as far as, as anyone's ever got, which I think was around 245 Uh, just to give you an idea of how incredibly difficult it is. Mm. I am also old enough to remember when Gordon Brown promised five eco-towns. So I am in the category of of believing uh, Keir Starmer's new towns pledge when I see it, not because I don't think he wants to deliver it, but I just think it's very difficult to deliver these things. Um, And also, it's also worth bearing in mind that we are now so far behind on where we need to be with the house building. It won't, you know, it won't touch the 
size in terms of capacity. I think now you'd be looking at something like 425 to 480,000 homes you'd need to build a year, every year for many years to be able to meet the demands uh, on our nation at the moment. So it is the right thing to carve out, uh, good on planning, believe it when I see it on housing delivery. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Keir Starmer was asked about those targets this morning uh, by my friend and colleague Stig Abel at Times Radio uh, and he was trying to get to to that point of is this target realistic and how committed are you to it and he was sort of asking him are you so committed that you would decline to stand for a second term if you fail to hit them and he sort of didn't go there necessarily but he said he was confident he said the figures have been bomb-proofed over the last couple of years as well. So um, he's sort of sticking to that 1.5 million homes over the course of, of the next parliament as his target, but wouldn't be drawn on that, you know, how, how firm a commitment is it, I suppose. But maybe that's because, there, you know, there are realistic challenges that he, that he faces when, he, when it comes to actually delivering that. Um, yeah, first of all, I would fight shy of using the words bomb-proofed at the moment. Well, yes, I know that's um, what he said, though. That's a direct quote. No, I know, I know. Uh, uh I've had a couple of people point this out to me this morning, though, mm. uh, in regards to that. I think that upsets a couple of people who are understandably Fair enough, yeah. very fragile at the moment. Uh, but secondly, yeah, look, I don't doubt his 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 belief in it, but I, just, I tell you from having worked on the other side of it, this is mm. incredibly difficult to do. We're not China. We cannot like, ignore local democracy and the concerns of local residents. We need to work with them. Uh, and clearly there needs to be some investment in it. But Section 106, you know, the communities have been have been promised all sorts of things in Section 106 housing developments that have been built in their area in the past. And I can point to any number of communities that will say, you know, this developer promised, you know, a school and some shops and some, you know, a, a couple of GP surgeries. And where are they? You know, there was one in a in a community where I used to live, where all sorts of things were promised under Section 106, which, sorry, I've just realised I got nerdy without explaining. But developers, 
Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know what section 106 is? I'm rummaging. Uh, I can't find it. I can't sometimes find it. my nerdiness just gets away from my ability to not know that everyone doesn't live in geek land like I do. <laughs> so section 106 is basically a contract that developers uh, have with the, with, the, with the local council and the local communities when they want to build homes, the kind of quid pro quo, if you like, of building homes, uh, near an existing community is to promise benefits for that community, if you like. So that is in part affordable housing, social homes. It's also new infrastructure where necessary to ease the uh, uh, consequential increase in, in strain on infrastructure. So that might be traffic. So that might be new roads and, and new uh, road signaling. But it's also things like additional GP surgeries, uh, new shops, uh, and new schools to cope with the increase in the in the community that, that these new homes will bring in. However, uh, there is little, by the way, of punishment for developers that do not make good on their 106 promises. So there is a good deal of scepticism within local communities about Section 106. Uh, and I don't know how you overcome that, if you like, to remove some uh, some of that kind of NIMBY attitude. Look, I'm a self-confessed YIMBY. I think, you know, if you will the ends, you've got to will the means on this. Um, but that's easy for me to say because, you know, I'm a city dweller, or you know, and, I, and by heart, and I always have been, but I appreciate that this is harder for communities uh, who've paid, you know, a lot of money through their hard-earned work to enjoy a lovely uh, view of a field. Uh, you know, <laughs> I remember when I first moved in down out of London, I there was a bunch of fields and I took the kids out on the first day and I said, for a joke, I said, oh, kids, look at these lovely fields. One day they'll be as far as four thousand as far as the eye can see. <laughs> and sure enough, five years later, uh, my <laughs> idle joke has come to about hundreds and hundreds of homes, mm. uh, which has increased flooding for the communities that live down the hill from these homes. Uh, they've put some inadequate kind of infrastructure in to cope with the uh, already choked roads of Sussex uh, and the extra, you know, and and we're all still waiting on promises of, you know, of surgeries and houses, et cetera, um, surgeries and, and mm. hospitals and 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 shops, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's a really hard one. Community re resistance is a really hard one to overcome. We are a democratic country and I'll be... Fascinated to see some more flesh on this bone. Um, yeah. And it's important, I guess, what Kira was talking about in this speech is also putting new developments where there's existing infrastructure like train stations, light schools, uh, GP surgeries. But I think the point about sewage is like, um, I live in Walthamstow, we had really bad flooding. Like last year, my daughter's school flooded and was closed for ages because like the sewers just couldn't cope with uh, all the new developments. And when heavy rain came really quickly, um, it caught the drains just couldn't drain the water away um and like being like a councillor in Islington we had especially in my ward which is near which was near the city of London we'd have like enormous developments um going up um and there'd be complaints that the community infrastructure levy would go to benefit projects in the north of the borough rather than around the south where like a lot of the development was so even when you have got the money coming in like how it's spent and how it kind of benefits the communities that will be experiencing a lot of disruption as part of the new build developments and then also like what kind of houses are built as well we used to have a rule that like 50 percent had to be like affordable um and social housing but then we could be overruled by the planning inspectorate which would happen quite a few times some of the worst developments that won the carbuncle award for like ugliest piece of architecture was uh, on caledonian road near king's cross where some student housing was built and they kept a kind of facade of, uh, I don't know if it was Victorian, but a kind of old factory. But the windows of the student housing looked straight out onto like brick. Um, and we turned it down, but the planning inspector had overruled it and said, no, it's OK, because students don't need light because they'll be out partying. So then these students, Whoa. like, they built this, like, absolutely appalling development. So quality of development matters as well. Like, there was, I was quite satisfied. There was one uh, development built that didn't meet fire codes that we actually insisted was torn down. But, like, Kirsty's point about enforcement, like, you know, I 
think you need to take a really strong view to enforcing these. And if the building isn't done correctly or to code, or people have just, uh, developers have added an extra level in or an extra few floors, and they should actually um, be made to go back and enforce the rules of the development. But I often, that doesn't always happen. And then there's the whole issue as well of like the existing housing stock, which we've known from like scandals about um, black mould on the walls and actually how like, some of these developments built in the 60s that weren't built to last more than 30 or 40 years um, are, like, not in good condition uh, and not good places for people to live. And we know, like, the impact that this has on people and their health of, like, being in these, like, poor quality developments, as well as building new housing. And it's really difficult because councils have had their budgets under so much pressure and like so much has been cut from council budgets um, over the last 10 years, that actually maintaining and improving the existing stock and like in some cases um, rebuilding the existing stock is something that needs to be considered as well as like building the yeah. new housing. So it's, um, it's a, a massive issue. But then uh, one thing I'd say as well is a lot of the new... So if you look at like who are Labour's new parliamentary candidates... A lot of them are either lawyers, unsurprisingly, or people from local government, including like people who've been on planning committees who um, have experience of delivering a housing and some of the challenges around housing uh, in their areas. So it's, you know, different parties are different. And like there's a lot of people who are very passionate about like the NHS, housing and education in Labour. Um and if you go to fringes, there'll be lots of like very detailed debate about housing policy uh, that you might not see in other parties. So that like at least uh, kind of starts the debate from people who are like informed and would love to like chat with Kirsty about Section 106 and community infrastructure levy agreements because that's, that's how a whole like separate podcast it's a whole thing. It now, and it's. Um, it's something people do feel really passionate about. But as you mm. say, like local democracy, you have to have the consent of people to do things. Local mm. democracy does matter. And also the quality of housing matters because there's no no good building substandard quality that looks good yeah. on paper, but five years later is all like crumbling and um, not where it needs to be. So then, I suppose by way of just concluding this particular section of the pod on, on Labour Party conference... What what is the aftertaste, if I can put it like that? So here we are as conference concludes. <laughs> Kirsty's giving me a look, but but you know if we're saying it was a kind of lovely conference that it's representing a kind of a, a, a new chapter for Labour and indeed for Keir Starmer, who appeared to have that energy that people have been kind of looking for. What what happens now as he as he does emerge into the real world? And I suppose this this will tee up our conversation, which we'll have shortly about the situation in the Middle East. Um, but I just wonder, you know, where he goes from here as he leaves as he leaves the conference centre and and gets back to the kind of daily grind of politics, Kirsty. How does that work? Okay, well, first of all, just to have a quick word about the actual leader's speech itself. Oh, sure. Um, uh, both. Both leaders had exactly the same challenge, I think, which was needed, which was that they needed to flesh out the vision thing, how the vision thing related to their values, uh, and what it meant for, you know, for for Britons. Um, and uh, I think Sunak's was was largely a miss because it it didn't really show uh, where we got from. You know where we are now to where they, you know, where he wanted to take the country, um, and we had these kind of weird three kind of policy announcements that had no particular meaningful thread of a narrative that linked them, uh, and were more about sort of you know stopping things and banning things than you know creating things and building a a better future. I think in the battle for laying chain laying uh, the groundwork to be the, the candidate of change and the candidate who wants to build for the long-term future of Britain. Uh, I think for me, Starmer won that hands down. Um, it was very much a speech about uh, his vision for Britain, his values, how that relates to his vision for Britain and what that means for ordinary uh, working people in Britain. It's a very well-crafted speech. 
Keir Starmer is not the most gifted orator in the world, but I think he did a good job of building passion into that. And when he got standing ovations, of which he got enough, but not too many, if you like, that it didn't look too, that it didn't look orchestrated, he continued to talk through those. So that mm. created that sense of passion and energy in the room. Um, and, you know, he fleshed out. Uh, a little bit of policy, but didn't make it too policy heavy. Like I said, I don't think that's necessary at this stage of the game. And he took those five missions, which are, you know, chunky and impenetrable, and you can start to see how he's drilling those down into five pledges that are much more, you know, safer streets, better NHS, much better, much easier for campaigners to take out into the streets and shorthand in the campaign. So I think where he goes from now is you take those five pledges, you repeat them ad nauseum on the doorstep, in interviews, etc. And, you know, I, there's no rush this side of Christmas uh, to, to, to flesh out the policy, but you build on this. This is who Starmer is. This is who he's told you he is. This has told you the country he wants to build. Uh, and this is, you know, this is where his... Uh, focuses on safer streets, better NHS, smashing the glass ceiling, et cetera, et cetera. But also the other really important thing he did this was manage expectations. He said to people, look, you know, there's not a lot of money left um, and this is going to take a long time. You know, what's broken can be fixed. You know, what is, you know, what we can, you know, we can heal and we can build, but it will take 10 years. And so he's promised. So that that promise of a long term investment uh, is in part about being honest about the state we're in, but also about managing expectations about how quickly they can deliver. I thought, you know, I mean, I'd give it good marks out of ten. I, it did exactly what it needed to do. Whilst Sunak fell short for me on quite a lot of that, uh, Stammers was a solid hit. And look, I think that's. Um... You're absolutely right because the metrics of like personal polling between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are much closer than the polling between Labour and the Conservatives. Like to actually, and the Conservatives, you know, like to call him sick here and act like he's a kind of figure of the establishment or the elite for Keir to kind of set out his actual background, who he is, where he's from, um, and like how his values like inform his politics is actually really important and to let the country get to know Keir as well and for him to define himself rather than be defined by other people um and you're absolutely right about the kind of five missions in a kind of very kind of technical language uh to something that's more retail so at the end of the speech they were handing out these kind of things that look very much like pledge cards it's like here is what they were like handing out and the number one instead so of what, like, so it kind of outlines the five things in, in what looks like multi, multiple different colors yes so it's the same colors as like what the um five missions were but instead of the first one which was the highest sustained growth in the g7 it says get britain building again switch and then the next one's like switch on great british energy get the nhs back on its feet take back our streets break down barriers to opportunities which uh, is the same. So it's kind of taking the ideas behind the missions and putting them into like a more everyday retail mm. offer that will form, you know, getting towards what will be the pledge cards at the general election. And so moving into like a new phase of policy communication. And there weren't like lots of new announcements uh, at the whole of the conference, actually. Like we've got the National Policy Forum documents. That's 119 pages, or 116 pages of like, very detailed policies that will um in some areas they're very detailed in other areas it's just the kind of broad narrative but like it's so much in terms of policy aspirations more than you could achieve in one parliament more than in two and like labor like really pushing the point that actually to achieve what they need to achieve they're going to need a majority government but also more than one term and so you had like people unanimously voting through the policy documents and i can get like the frustration of um people from the outside who want to know like yeah but how will this work in practice let's see the details but uh, i think labor also quite wary of having good policies nabbed by the conservative government too but like the closer we get to the election that's when you'll get like the manifesto and things but it was interesting to see them handing out these kind of proto pledge cards and Kirsty, your point as well about the speech being locked down before he gave it they were like distributing to people signed copies of it 
So, wow. uh, you know, for raffle prizes and stuff. And like we're getting like signed copies of Blair's 97 speech for raffle prizes because there's a lot of fundraisers going on for like the parliamentary candidates. And so that is interesting. Mm. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, uh, the other thing that like in the room, we were like, wow, that was good. But it was like, like an hour. We were all expecting there to, to be in there for a lot longer. And like, it was quite refreshing. Where are you? Because some, some think that was too long. Oh, I don't know. Like, I feel for a leader speech. I'd like, uh, maybe I'm traumatised from the years of like, very, very long uh, speeches. But you're right, he kept it tight <laughs> by also talking through the applause and the standing ovations too. Like, if he'd stopped for all of that, it would have taken longer. But then there's a whole thing, like in 2023, like just sitting for an hour's speech does feel like quite an unusual thing when we're used to consuming media in like much smaller totally. sections. I think that's interesting because one of my one of my thoughts, to be fair, potentially from both leaders, is that by by really going strong on this, we're making long term decisions. It does it does feel mature. It mm. feels like politics is important, and it doesn't. It takes away that whimsical nature of short termism. And I just wonder if actually that carries a real weight to the electorate. And in some ways, I hope it does, because that is how politics and policy works. It is long term. It has to be. And I just wonder if that's a kind of if that's if that is a tone a vibe, actually, if I can if I can say that, that that will that will help the electorate when it comes to making a decision is this feels important and I need to think about this. And, you know, it just I don't know, it feels like a sense of importance and gravitas that perhaps has been lacking, I think is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. But like my like the fear in Labour is that it's just going to get very nasty and going to go down a lot of kind of culture wars and like um, the attacks on people. It's going to get personal and unpleasant. It, wouldn't it be great though if it's actually like a grown up discussion about the long term future of our country and who offers like the best choice? But um, rather than like scapegoating migrants and talking about trans stuff uh, like you know attacks on Angela Rayner and things but like we'll we'll see well I say I say this at every general election what I would like all main candidates to do is to sign up to mm. a respect pledge yeah here, a respect here. pledge of how they talk about and to their uh you know their election rivals because it matters and we've seen too many elections where uh, the abuse of those that are standing becomes, you know, almost unbearable um, and is reaching levels that we've never, you know, that any candidate will tell you they've never known in this country. Um, and if we want to build a country where we talk to each other with a respect and tolerance and try and get back from this awful polarisation that our society uh, has, you know, succumbed to, in other words, if we don't want to continue down the road of becoming America, uh, then we need to revive one of those great British values, two of those great British values, which is respect and tolerance. And I think that needs to start with mm. our parliamentary candidates at the next election. Um, sorry, that was a bit pompous. No, no, it's important. No, it's important. Comes from the heart. It's so important and it cuts both ways. And like all parties have a responsibility to do that as well. because And it's always the female MPs from both parties that tend to get the most abuse and like the female MPs who aren't white as well. You see that sometimes the way people like, will like talk about Suella Breverman and stuff as well. It's like, uh, I think everyone has to have that. But like one of the things I do like out is like try and encourage more people to stand for like local and national government. And it's a huge barrier that puts particularly women off getting involved in politics at all is the abuse and the abuse you get on social media and like loads of people are like, but just why would I do it? And there are just so many talented people in this country who would have a lot to offer that are going to go nowhere near it until this is fixed. Because like it's, and it's so much worse than gets reported because no one wants to actually upset their friends and family by talking about how bad the problems really are. Um, and, you know, like even as a counsellor, I had like death threats and stuff. I had like a stalker that was sectioned. Like Gosh. it's crazy that the stuff that people go through, particularly like female MPs and the female MPs who um, are like black or Asian as well. So um, that is definitely something that needs to be addressed and all parties have a responsibility and their members to... Um, do that and not other each other and actually just have a grown-up debate 
Okay, right, let's just follow on from that by then considering the, well, the situation in the Middle East, the situation in Israel and in Gaza, the political responses to it from the UK. And I mean, Kirsty, what is a dire situation, actually, and details as they develop throughout since the weekend have just got kind of even more grim and even more grim. As we record, and bearing in mind the situation does change quite quickly, uh, the Israeli military says hundreds of thousands of troops are near the Gaza border, ready to execute the mission we have been given, is the quote. Uh, Israel is expected to launch a ground defensive on the Gaza Strip soon at some stage. It says the mission is to make sure Hamas won't have any military capabilities and I caught this stat, um, the, the death toll uh, in Israel has reached 1,200. More than 900 people have been killed by Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. But one way of thinking about the scale of the terrorist attack on Israel is to consider that the death toll of 1,200 and rising would be the equivalent, and I, I hesitate to do this, but it's only to emphasise the scale of the situation, okay, is would be the equivalent of 40,000 people in America which would be 10 times the loss of 9-11. So pretty quickly after the Hamas attack at the weekend, people were drawing comparisons and saying this is Israel's 9-11. And so I'm only using that comparison in order that we emphasize the scale of what's going on here. Uh, Kirsty, it is grim, it is precarious, it is difficult. And it, I mean, it is evolving. It is changing very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, there are no words to do justice to uh, the barbaric horror that we witnessed in this terror attack on Israel. Just no words, and I'm not going to uh, uh, run through the appalling litany um, of uh, medieval uh, butchery um, that we've seen unfolding over the last few days. But I do think it's very important to stress a couple of things here. Um, that both the Conservatives and Labour have been absolutely and utterly unequivocal in their support for Israel, as have every leader of every political hue and every liberal, liberal democracy across the world. Israel has every right to defend itself. There is absolutely no justification for the attack that was perpetrated by Hamas on, on the people of Israel. No justification for it at all. Um, and we must be all very mindful over the coming days not to succumb when, when, when things become very difficult, not to succumb to any attempts at moral equivalency here. There is no moral equivalency here. Uh, and I think we should stay very, very mindful of that. That is not to say that my heart doesn't break for uh, innocent uh, Palestinians, Gazans, who are caught up in this terrible, terrible atrocity. Uh, but I know where the blame for that lies. That lies with Hamas, uh, who are a prescribed terrorist organisation in this country. Let's not lose sight of exactly what Hamas wanted to achieve here. This isn't a resistance struggle for Hamas. This is about the utter annihilation of Israel. Uh, it is in their charter that they wanted Israel wiped off the face of the map. For uh, many, many years, they have siphoned aid uh, you know, that could have been used to build homes and hospitals and schools for Gazans and used it to buy weapons and build tunnels which cost millions and millions of pounds under the city and under the barriers to both smuggle arms, hold arms, hold hostages, make raids and incursions in Israel to try and kidnap people before most of those tunnels are found and blocked off with cement. Um, they are backed by Iran and what Iran, uh, who are themselves backed by Russia, and what they're after here is the complete destabilisation of the Middle East because uh, over the last uh, few years, Israel has uh, made a number of normalization and trade agreements with Gulf states who are increasingly worried about the uh, iron grip of Iran on the region. Uh, and they were beginning to, to, to have talks and normalization agreements with Saudi Arabia. Now, Iran 
was not prepared to let that stand. Uh, so nobody, but nobody should lose sight of what this is actually about. This is about, for Hamas, this is about ultimately the destruction of Israel, and the removal of Israel off the face of the map. And for Iran, it's about increasing its stranglehold over the entire region. And I just want to say one other thing. If you, if you looked at what happened on Saturday and your response as a Briton was to go out into the streets of London and wave, or Brighton, wave flags and call what you witnessed beautiful and inspiring and to chart from the river to the sea, never mind a point about being, you know, Iran or Hamas as useful idiots. Where is your humanity? How can you look at what you saw, you know, played out in social media and be so divorced from any compassion that that is your response, to go out and chant for the destruction of Israel, to call Hamas freedom fighters and martyrs, uh, and to celebrate in the death and destruction and butchery of babies and women and you know old ladies moved down at bus stops and it just how pitiless how pitiless does it have to be it you know it is a it is a uh, it is unfathomable to me it's unfathomable to me to witness what I saw in London as to to witness what I saw uh, in Israel. And the other thing we need to be very careful of is what happens in Israel has a very, very real consequence for the British Jewish community in this country. Mm. Every time there is conflict between Hamas and Israel, it leads to a massive, massive spike in violence and abuse and intimidation of the British Jewish community. You know, we need to be really careful about what we say and what we do because they've already had to, you know, increased security around schools and synagogues. And I know from the last conflict um, that the massive increase in abuse of the Jewish community, nobody in this country should be made to feel unsafe uh, at any time. And that is why, coming back to my first point, that is why it is so important to witness uh, both the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary, uh, all of the cabinet and all of the shadow cabinet express their mm. um, their uh, unequivocal uh, support for Israel and to stand with Israel. Uh, and if I can just make one other point, sorry, I'm a, a bit emotional about this. When I think about how how far the Labour Party has come, there were there were two points for me, you know, with with what I thought was so awful about the toxic legacy of Corbyn was not only did he allow the party uh, to be uh, overrun with anti-Semites and, you know, and, you know, racists. Uh, he brought a great party to its knees to the point that at the last election it had drifted so far from the values of British people that it, uh, it was punished with its worst election results since 1935, and rightly so too. So to witness... Not just, you know, the shadow cabinet delivering its unequivocal support, but the conference floor to stand in an ovation, a spontaneous ovation at that, to see, um, you know, queues going round and round and round uh, for tickets for the Labour Friends of Israel event, you know, to know that people like Luciana Berger can walk through the conference now and get hugs rather than have to be protected uh you know it was just very emotional and i uh in four short years um that party has been completely transformed back to the values uh of what britain is really all about which is tolerance love and respect that's a really interesting point alice just to get your considerations on as well having spent the last few days at conference something we touched on earlier in the podcast as well but uh, just reflect there on, on Kirsty's thoughts on on that, on where the Labour Party is at now. I think it's like a source of like just deep, deep shame to be found to be institutionally anti-Semitic, and that um, the EHRC ruling, like you, you just have to stop and reevaluate everything. It was like such a serious, important moment, and like every single um, person who was involved in bringing that case 
you know, played a really important role in saving the Labour Party. Um, and Labour wouldn't be here on the verge of winning the election if it hadn't have been through that process. And like, including a lot of very like talented Brazilian young Jewish members who were involved in um, bringing that and the Jewish Labour movement as well. Like lots of, uh, like it must have been so tough and there were like no right or wrong decisions. I can completely see why people left. But like in the council elections last year when we were winning back Barnet, it felt like... Um, and I decided to go and campaign in Barnet that day as well because I felt like we'd really like let Barnet down in lots of different communities as well. So to see the party changed um, and the way that the kid took a complete zero tolerance to this. Say like, you know, if you're looking for the difference between different leaders, like judge people by what they do and what Keir's achieved in those four years is like really remarkable. Like the way he's taken Labour from being demoralized broken on the verge of bankruptcy uh with like yeah as Kirsty says so far from like the british mainstream institutionally anti-semitic to the party it is now where like um and like every time i'd see some of our fantastic uh jewish mps and former mps walk past and like i think uh Louise Elman and like luciana berger and margaret hodge were sitting kind of just behind where i was for the leader's speech and to have them back in the room and a big part of Labour again is so important and to have been on that journey as well because to if you want to be Prime Minister you've got to love the country and have a, like um, the right kind of morality as well so yeah I think it's absolutely incredible what Keir's achieved and when people are considering like how they want to vote at the election like you know judge him by what he's done as well and like that kind of um idea about public service uh, and like bit like wanting to be fit to lead as well is like really important but yeah it's it's been a whole process and like that's one of the things that contributed it to it actually being a lovely experience to kind of feel that the Labour Party is back as a like mainstream force for like the left in British politics. I think you'd have to go back to David Cameron um and his the fight that he deliberately picked with his own party to ensure that same-sex marriage became law in this country to find a leader who was prepared uh, to expend so much capital on something because he believed it was the right thing to do. Um, it's not been easy for Keir Starmer, um, uh, but he believed it. His, you know, he's, on day one, he promised to rip anti-Semitism out of the party by its roots. Um, it's not perfect. There are some, you know, Labour MPs within the party that, you know, people can rightly point at and probably say shouldn't shouldn't have that platform. But, you know, he has done an incredible job of detoxifying, draining the swamp, you know, draining the poison, whatever you want to call it, from, from the party. And that was written large for me in Liverpool, not just by what the front bench said, but how the delegates in the conference behaved. Uh, and it was, a you know, it was a significant for me and very profound moment of a party that has come uh, back to the mainstream, as you say, and is there to represent the values that, that the British people want to see from their politicians. Both, thank you so very much for your considerations, your insight, your expertise. Um, it's really, really good to have you both on uh, to consider all that's going on this week. It is a busy week. It is a fast-changing situation in Israel, in the Middle East. And so it is something to which I'm sure we'll return. Uh, Kirsty, thank you. Alice, thank you very much as well. Uh, this is Whitehall Sources. We're here every single week in your podcast feed. So make sure you follow, uh, stick around, get the best political analysis, the best insight from those who have lived it as you have just heard over the last hour or so those who have been there who have experienced it and so can take you behind the scenes to understand what's going on today uh, thanks for being with us today and we'll talk to you next week
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.